This is Second Look. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's News Director. Welcome to the show. Hey, I know you just heard a fundraising message, but I'll throw my voice in too. While you're listening to Second Look, please make your contribution to WMRA.org. And stay tuned. We've got lots to review in the next half hour, including a skeptical look at a USA Today report pointing the finger at Harrisonburg's poverty rate. Of course, it's a problem, but local activists say it's, well, complicated. Also, we'll hear about a Miller Center discussion about the Kerner Commission and whether police tactics have reverted somewhat more than 50 years after riots exploded during the long, hot summer of 1967. We'll also have details about a worsening case of mange among black bears in Virginia and how the Wildlife Center of Virginia is fighting the outbreak, plus a look back at the groundbreaking championship tennis career of Richmond native Arthur Ashe and Virginia politics, of course. But first... So when you're making plans for eating out maybe last night, you, of course, said, hey, let's go eat at the hospital buffet. Okay, probably not because hospital food gets a bad rap, but Augusta Health in Fishersville is trying to change that. The hospital has harvested roughly 10,000 pounds of fresh produce so far this year from an on-site farm. It's part of an initiative to improve the quality of food for patients and to raise awareness that good nutrition is the best medicine, WMRE's Jesse Nadler reports. It's a super hot day, and farmer Pat Banks walks me around a one-acre farm sandwiched between Augusta Health, a lumberyard, and a recycling center in Fishersville. It's not the most bucolic setting, but it is very productive. We got our, uh, this was our onions to our right. This is what we're kind of harvesting out right now. Um, this is winter squash, melons. Um, we grill the whole gamut, pretty much. Banks is the farm manager at Augusta Health. The hospital partnered with the Allegheny Mountain Institute, or AMI, to make the farm happen. Sue Earhart is AMI's executive director. And our mission is really simple. It's to create healthy communities through food and education. The AMI farm at Augusta has already yielded 10,000 pounds of produce, 2,000 pounds more than projected. What's from the farm today? The AMI farm supplies the hospital with produce for its cafeteria and patient meals. Food is medicine. Doug Pugh is director of Augusta Health's Nutritional Services. We met at the hospital's cafeteria at lunchtime. This is really the trend. Augusta Health is at the tip of the spear. We are very proud to be one of the few hospitals in Virginia that's currently doing this. In fact, Augusta Health is one of the few hospitals in the country with its own on-site farm. Pugh says he would love to get to the point where all produce they serve is grown on-site. They're already in the process of tripling the size of the farm from one acre to three. And how is AMI farm produce? I go through the buffet line to find out. Today's farm selection, sautéed zucchini with cherry tomatoes. Hi there. Can I get some of that delicious-looking squash? Uh, Yeah, I'll have some of that sirloin. I also load up on a bunch of chopped heirloom-looking tomatoes from the salad bar. Yum. That's great. Thank you. Travis Foster is chef manager in nutrition services at Augusta. They sent us a whole lot of greens. Foster is the one tasked with figuring out what to do with the thousands of pounds of produce coming in from the farm. It's a problem familiar to any cook during the harvest. So it's been a challenge and also fun figuring out ways to cook and get people to eat that much greens. You know, do some research, um, play around, mess up a couple recipes, eat a bunch of kale. 
The vegetables are also funneled into the hospital's new food pharmacy program. It's a physician referral program for patients with type 2 diabetes, whose blood glucose is out of the normal range and not being managed. It's 16 weeks long and includes nutrition education, cooking classes, and recipes using the vegetables. Krista Moyers helped coordinate the project, currently in its ninth week. And already we're able to see a a drop in people's weight and waist circumference. Food pharmacies are popping up all over the country, including in Charlottesville and the New River Valley. It's part of a move toward more prevention-oriented medicine. And to help make these healthy changes stick, participants in the food pharmacy program receive vouchers for free vegetables from the farm stand right on Augusta's campus. The farm stand is open every Tuesday afternoon and is open to the public. For WMRA News, I'm Jesse Nadler. Virginia's biologists have their eyes on a number of problems in the state, such as giant hogweed and chronic wasting disease in deer. Another problem is on the rise, too, mange in black bears. But there might be a new treatment, as WMRA's Christopher Clymer-Kurtz reports. Fred Frenzel is a district biologist with the Virginia Department of Game and Inland Fisheries. He's based in Edinburgh and serves Fauquier, Frederick, Clark, Shenandoah, and Warren counties, and he has a name for his part of the state. I sort of semi-jokingly refer to my area as the District of Pestilence. It seems like if something strange is going to occur, it's going to be here. The dangerous giant hogweed is here and elsewhere in the state. It can cause vision problems, and if you get its sap on your skin in sunlight, blistering, and severe burns. And it's big. I've heard folks describe it as like Queen Anne's lace on steroids. Then there's chronic wasting disease, a fatal neurological disease in deer. Frenzel's district includes a containment area. Whole deer carcasses can't be transported out of the four-county area, and there's a carcass testing program during deer hunting seasons. There's the longhorn tick here and elsewhere. Frenzel said he's not a tick guy, but he's read it can carry pretty much all the tick-borne human diseases. It sounds like the things they make horror movies out of, but yeah, it's in my district too. And there's mange in bears. It's shown up in other states, including Pennsylvania, where it's a bigger problem, but it's now spreading across Virginia after first appearing in, you guessed it, Frenzel's district. The Wildlife Center of Virginia near Waynesboro has received several bears with advanced cases. Ed Clark, the center's president and founder, explains how serious mange is. It's a skin mite that embeds itself in the skin of the host animal, and the inflammation that comes from their bites and embedding their tiny little bodies inside the hair follicles of, of affected animals is skin inflammation that causes the hair to fall out. The proliferation of these mites can quite literally uh, drain the blood of the animal to the point that it can weaken and kill the host animal. Mange in bears isn't new, but biologist Frenzel said the mange that's been on the rise in the last few years, it's called sarcoptic mange, is caused by a different mite, one that's typically found on canines, not bears. Does that say to you that the mites are adapting or that the bears have developed a vulnerability? We don't know. We don't know. It, I mean, anything along that line is just speculation. It, it would seem it's got to be one or the other of those things. This species of mite has been around pretty much forever, and the bears have been too, and it's never been a problem for them. So something's changed. We don't know what that is. It's not a pretty disease in bears. The ones we've dealt with a lot are in the, the later stages of, of the disease. Typically, they, they lose a lot of hair. Their skin gets really thick and crusty. They are really skinny. They become really lethargic, just sit around, just walk around. They don't really run. You know, they just kind of hang out, and they, they act really apathetic. They, they just 
they might just sit there in the yard and, and look, you walk right up to one, and it just sits there and looks at you as if, you know, it doesn't care. There's some good news in the works, though, for bears with mange, no matter the kind of mite infecting them. The commonly used drug for treatment has been ivermectin, which requires two doses days apart. That's not conducive to administering to animals in the wild, but the Wildlife Center is researching a different drug, Brevecto, that could be used to treat bears with mange. It requires just one dose, perhaps planted in a donut, and fed to an infected bear. Veterinarian Peach Van Wick is a wildlife research fellow at the Wildlife Center. Overall, we're really happy with the results that we've seen and proud of the bears that we have treated, and they've gotten a lot better. They come in just so affected, and then we've been giving them this medication, and then even a few weeks later, you know, they're eating everything, they're feisty, you know, they're angry whenever we approach them, so they start acting more like bears, and that, that's exactly what we want to see. There's still more to learn about the use of the drug in bears, for example, how quickly it disappears from bears' bloodstream and tissues, particularly if it's to be used in the wild where people hunt bears for food. In the meantime, Clark said, Well, to say that we're excited about it is, is sort of an understatement. We are absolutely astonished at the results we have gotten with some of these severe cases, and we are very optimistic and very hopeful that through our clinical work, we will have discovered and developed a technique and a protocol for using this, uh, this medication in the field that could quite literally save the lives of hundreds of bears. It's pretty cool. A recent USA Today report named Harrisonburg as the Virginia city hit hardest by extreme poverty, and that's a quote. City officials and even some activists who deal with the problem said, really? At the least, they say that report is misleading, and advocates for people in need point to other measures of poverty. Christopher talked with them. Harrisonburg's Director of Economic Development, Brian Shaw, said the USA Today report overlooked the impact on poverty rates by university students who live off campus. It didn't get into that detail. It just showed Harrisonburg having very high poverty. It's a shame when you're not able to do a deeper dive into that. Shaw said that a recent retail market analysis for the city that accounted for those university students put the city's poverty rate at 10.6%, lower than the state's rate of 11%. But other indicators suggest that Harrisonburg isn't so well off. Sam Nichols, executive director of our community place, points to wage levels and the lack of needed affordable housing. We know that lots of folks are really struggling with trying to stay out of poverty, trying to stay out of homelessness. And there are other statistics. A United Way report says that in 2015, the rate of households earning more than the federal poverty level but not enough to cover the basic costs of living was 39% in Harrisonburg, compared to 28% statewide. Another indicator? Public school students qualifying for free lunches at participating schools. In the city last year, that was 64%, compared to 39% statewide. For WMRA News, I'm Christopher Clymer kurtz More than 50 years ago, race riots swept across the United States during what became known as the long, hot summer of 1967. Historian Steve Gillen spoke at the Miller Center in Charlottesville on Thursday to discuss his new book about the Kerner Commission and the investigation into the unrest. WMRA's Marguerite Gallerini reports. In July 1967, race riots in Newark and Detroit lasted several days and killed and injured hundreds of people. The National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders was set up, and a team of social scientists were stunned by what they saw on the field, says author Steve Gillen. These field reports are intensely critical of the police. 
and they show that the one common thread that ran through all of the riots, that everybody who participated in the riots either was a victim of police brutality or had witnessed police brutality. The commission issued its report in 1968. While its overall proposals were largely disregarded by President Johnson, some of its recommendations on law enforcement did have an impact. There is a real effort after 1968. A number of police organizations meet with members of the commission. They take their recommendations seriously and they incorporate them. One of the, the central recommendations that the commission had was that the police not be militarized and that when events take place, there are ways of controlling without bringing in tanks. There was a positive impact of the commission on, on policing. I think it's, we're going backwards in some ways. For WMRA News, I'm Marguerite Gallerini. So great to have Marguerite back reporting from Charlottesville again after a brief hiatus, and you'll be hearing more from her in the coming months. As the U.S. Open men's tennis final gets underway uh, over the weekend, many people will mark Arthur Ashe's barrier-breaking victory 50 years ago today. Virginia Public Radio's Jason Fuller follows Ashe's path from his hometown of Richmond to the championship. I was always a very good little athlete. I was fast and I was quick, but I was not very big. Arthur Ashe speaking with Terry Gross on WHYY's Fresh Air back in 1989. Fifty years ago this month, Arthur Ashe became the first African-American male to win the U.S. Open. And as fans and proud Virginians prepare to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Ashe's victory, many will visit Battery Park, once the site of a segregated tennis court. I was barred from all official sanctioned events in my home state. Battery Park is now the site of an effervescent mural to Ashe, tucked away in Richmond's north side. Very few will look to the Tennis Institution and Historical Landmark on 1422 Pierce Street in Lynchburg, Virginia. It's where a young Ash trained obsessively for 12 to 16 weeks during the summer. Even fewer will look to the man who erected the Lynchburg Landmark, Dr. Robert Whirlwind Johnson. He's responsible for cultivating and instilling discipline, sportsmanship, and deference in Ash. One of my grandfather's uh, favorite sayings was, it can be done. Lange Johnson is the grandson of Dr. Whirlwind Johnson. In 2009, he accepted his late grandfather's induction into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. He says his grandfather was all about paying it forward, using tennis as a vehicle to build honest people. And as fate would have it, young Lange took up the sport of tennis and would soon find himself holding tight to Ash's wise words. When he would provide advice, it's sort of like when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Ash once told young Lange to take his racket back whenever he saw the ball coming. That way, he wouldn't brush his serve. Johnson says that same type of advice that his grandfather and Ash impressed upon young tennis players is lacking today because the history isn't being passed down. You know, the biggest concern that he probably had in, in the last days of his life was making sure that the work he started with Althea and Arthur got continued. And so he would often say, don't close the door behind you. Discovering how Ash spent his summers prompted me to seek out the seminal figures responsible for bringing Ash to the tennis courts in his hometown of Richmond. Curiosity would lead me to a small diner off of West Broad Street, where I met up with Lou Inwick over coffee. The very first time I met Arthur was over at his father's home uh, over on Sled Avenue here in Richmond. Inwick served as the president of the Richmond Tennis Association 
RTA in the mid-60s. And I came over and met him, and Arthur agreed to uh, play in our tournament. The first tournament was in February of 1966. Unfortunately, it came to a quick end. Arthur drew Frank Froling in the first round, and Froling upset him. And what he found out was that the lighting wasn't very good, and he couldn't see very well. And right after that, Arthur went out and got himself a pair of eyeglasses. But Ash came back with those glasses and competed in RTA's tournament 10 more times. Enwick says that if you really think about it, Ash's 1968 U.S. Open victory started earlier in the year with victories at the RTA tournament and the U.S. Amateur National Championship in Boston, becoming the only man to win the Amateur and U.S. Open in the same calendar year. The final in 1968 between Arthur Ashe and Tom Ocker of the Netherlands was actually played on Monday. There had been some inclement weather. Steve Flink is a tennis historian and journalist. He was at the 68 U.S. Open final. The key to the whole match was the first set, I think, because it was a long, drawn-out first set, 14-12 for Ash. He finally broke him. Winning the inaugural U.S. Open in 68 was quite the feat. Ash went on to win two more majors. Flink adds that Ash was a man who was so much more than the sum of his accomplishments. He was an education advocate and a civil rights activist who traveled to South Africa to oppose apartheid. I'm Jason Fuller. All right, let's wrap up with a look at what's new in Virginia politics with Jeff Shapiro, political columnist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. He sat down for his usual weekly chat with Craig Carper at our partner station, WCVE. It was a busy week in Washington, D.C., but there was a lot going on here in Virginia. Republicans backing Dave Bratt, the embattled Richmond area congressman, are running a TV ad attacking his opponent, Abigail Spanberger, for teaching at a Muslim school in Northern Virginia. And this commercial is being paid for by a super PAC, the Congressional Leadership Fund. It is closely aligned with the House Speaker, Paul Ryan. And what it suggests is that Spanberger tried to keep secret that she worked at this Saudi-financed school in Alexandria. It's been nicknamed Terror High, and that's because some of its graduates have been tied to terror plots. School has been criticized by Republicans and Democrats. And now Dave Brad is starting to talk about this, says it's a big deal deal. It's not clear. Are the Republicans emphasizing this to energize the base because Brad is considered vulnerable? Are they trying to persuade Republican-leaning independents and centrist Republicans to stick with Brad, even though they don't like him and they're not particularly keen on the guy for whom he's become a big booster, uh, Donald Trump? This issue is sensitive for another reason. The information about Spanberger's teaching job was gleaned from a confidential questionnaire that Spanberger completed for the Postal Service, where she did anti-terror work before joining the Central Intelligence Agency. The Postal Service, by the way, says that the information was incorrectly released. That said, Republicans are still using this teaching tie as a data point to raise doubts about what is supposed to be one of Spanberger's biggest pluses, and that is her national security credentials. By the way, it should be pointed out that Spanberger was still hired by the CIA after her teaching job and her contact, apparently with Muslim culture, was considered a plus. And Jeff, with the Brett Kavanaugh hearing continuing in the Senate, it's a safe bet that Virginia's two Democratic senators won't vote to put him on the U.S. Supreme Court. 
Now, Mark Warner and Tim Kaine haven't said yet what they're going to do with this Trump pick. It is highly unlikely they will vote to confirm. There are a number of reasons for this. Some are rooted in policy. Most of them are political. But as this state becomes more strongly large D Democratic, the downside to voting against a Republican pick for the Supreme Court has diminished. Kaine is standing for re-election, a second term in the Senate. A lot of concern about Kavanaugh's position on abortion rights, that he might vote to overturn Roe. Here's a chance for Kaine to say no to that and energize the Democratic base. Warner is unhappy uh, with Kavanaugh because of the judge's expansive view of executive power. That's a big deal because of this continuing Mueller investigation and because of the investigation of the Russian attack on the 2016 election that's being conducted by the Senate Intelligence Committee, of which Warner is vice chairman. And House Speaker Kirk Cox is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn a trial court decision throwing out the Republican redistricting plan as racial gerrymandering. Cox had been promising this appeal. It could be a long shot. That is because the high court has already considered this case, returned it to the trial court, which using a narrow standard ordered by the Supreme Court, rejected a plan that it, the trial court, had previously upheld. So one wall is sort of closing in on the Republicans. Another wall closing in on the Republicans as a Democratic governor, Ralph Northam. He's clearly prepared to use his veto to prevent House Republicans from attempting to perpetuate their gerrymander. But simply, it appears the Republicans are running out of options. Thanks to Jeff Shapiro, political columnist at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Jeff, we will catch up again next week. Have a great weekend. Support for WMRA's News and Information Fund is provided by Bib and Dolly Frazier, Les and Johnny Grady, Klein May Realty, Eugene Stoltzfus Architects, Joy Loving, Janet Tretner, Nancy Barber, Pam and Jim Huggins, an anonymous donor, and by a grant from a donor-advised fund of the Community Foundation of Harrisonburg and Rockingham County. Thanks to everyone who gives to the News and Information Fund. That is literally what provides the resources necessary to bring you the kind of local news you get from WMRA every week. But this month, we're also asking you to support all the shows, all the news from NPR, all the great entertainment and information programs you hear every day on WMRA. It's our fall fundraiser, and of course, I'm not asking you to fund everything all by yourself, just to please do your part. Throw your support in with that of thousands of other people in your community who are members of WMRA. Now, you'll hear more on that as we continue with our programming this afternoon. With Good Reason is next. But you'll notice that we're not interrupting anything. To ask for your support, we continue to raise money the WMRA way. That means more news, less noise. Click the Donate button at WMRA.org. Thanks. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's News Director and Morning Edition host. I'll talk to you in the morning. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.